Well, praise the Lord, everybody. Hallelujah. It is good to be standing here in front of you on this, the 26th of June, the year of our Lord, 2022. For the organization of Greater Emmanuel, this is both a day of celebration and a day of sadness as we lay to rest our Vice Bishop Emeritus, Moses Youngblood, a very good friend of mine and spiritual father. We thank the Lord for his life. I wanted to take a moment to just honor this great man by sharing just a couple of quick words with you in relation to his life. He's had a tremendous impact on me and shared many things with me that have um, helped me to become who I am today and I am, I am better for knowing him. While I understand that none of us are perfect in any way, I also find this to be one of the things that he shared with me when I was being reviewed to be elevated to the office of bishop. As I stood before the council of bishops and they were all asking me questions and grilling me and doing you know, what it is that they do to determine whether or not this was what God had for me when they came to the conclusion and determined that this was what I should be, Bishop Youngblood looked at me and he said, son, I want you to know I'm proud of you. And even though we are going to elevate you to the office of bishop, I don't want you to ever think that you have to know everything. If you don't know it, tell people you don't know. Go find out. Figure out what it is that they've asked and the right answer. Don't be quick to answer. Always let people know what is true. And I thank God for that great direction and that um, instruction of wisdom. Because oftentimes you get a title and now you think you have to measure up to the title or people's expectation of what that title means. And I've come to learn that not even all of us hold the same expectation for the titles that we uh, hold in life. So I thank the Lord for Vice Bishop Emeritus Moses Youngblood, the life that he lived, the blessing that he will always be. And I wanted to take a moment to just honor him this day. Again, I thank the Lord for each and every one of you that uh, have joined with me here and for the studio audience that is uh, in the studio today. We, we're so thankful to the Lord for them. We're excited about what God is doing. And I'm excited about the Word of God as I was meditating on this throughout the night, uh, talking to the Lord, and the Lord was sharing with me some things concerning His Word. He allowed me to let you know that this is the conclusion of the matter. So over the last six weeks, seven weeks, whatever it's been that we've been talking about, uh, the amazement that I have, and I hope that by now you have, about God's word, you can go away today knowing that this is it. This is the conclusion of the matter. This is why the previous weeks have been so important. And I want you to take a moment and just write down, uh, whether you, you tweet it or you, or you put it on Facebook, I want you to just write down this one simple word because it is this word 
that determines whether God's word can be alive or dead in you. And that's the word application. Application. Just write that down. Type that out. Uh, put that in your notes. Whatever it is. Jot it down there on Facebook so I know you're listening. Application. We've been talking about God's amazing word over the last month to month and a half. And it all culminates today with gaining an understanding of the importance of God's word being applied to your daily moment-to-moment lives. Now understand, I'm saying moment-to-moment because too often we've given God in most cases or in many cases uh, parts of our life, but not all of our lives. And we've connected him to periods of time rather than all of the time of our life. And when the word of God is applied in our lives as it is intended by God, it results in an abundance of personal and spiritual growth. You see, it is the application of God's word that produces benefits in the lives of every believer. It is critical that you understand this and share this life-altering truth with everyone that you come into contact with. If you do not apply what you have learned, then what you have learned becomes meaningless. Whether we believe it or not, we all need direction in life. Yes, somebody needs to tell you what to do. Somebody needs to give you some instructions. One of the preeminent uh, sanctifying benefits of uh, applying scripture in your life is that it gives us sound direction for all of life. Our need for God's guidance is nothing new. We're flawed beings, and if you're going to be honest with yourself, many of us are broken right now. And throughout the Bible, God's people cry out for his help when when they, you know, either reach a a fork in the road or have their backs up against the wall or, or they're dealing with some trauma in their life. Moses and the Israelites were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army in Exodus, the 14th chapter, when God tells them to move forward into the sea. Solomon prays as he assumes the throne of Israel, and he states this, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, in 1 Kings 3 and 7. Then Solomon makes the greatest request of God that allowed him to become the greatest and wisest man that's ever been on the earth. Solomon asks God for wisdom to guide his people. I'm sure you know what it feels like to be in a major dilemma. You, you, know, you encounter situations in which you simply don't know which way to go or what it is to do. And in times like this, you need guidance, which makes the psalmist's ancient statement of God's guidance wholly relevant for us today. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119 and 105. No word in the Bible is ever wasted, but all of it is important. The Bible shows us the direction that we ought to take. We do not have to wander aimlessly in the fog of human opinion or human perspective. One of the truths in this great verse that stands out is how personal and specific the guidance is that we receive from the word of God. We can see this, for instance, in the psalmist's use of the word lamp. 
You see, lamps in biblical days were a far cry from the kind of lighting that we have today. We, we've been really spoiled when we apply some of the things that we see and experience today that match words that are in the Bible. You see, our lights can illuminate an entire room or a large area, and if we're walking in the dark, we have flashlights that can brighten up the path and show us any hidden obstacles like we're walking in the daytime. But in biblical days... A small oil lamp was a personal item carried by many people, and it was the only thing providing enough light for them, and it was only enough light for a person to see their next step. So they would have to depend on the light for every step that they take. A person had to walk carefully watching their every step. This is true of so many decisions and choices in life. Rarely, if ever, do we see an entire issue in one grand moment of illumination and know instantly everything that we need to do to be successful in it. You see, God has designed life in such a way that we have to trust him one step at a time. You ought to jot that down. One step at a time. You see... His word gives us a light enough for, you know, the next step that we're going to take. But as the light reveals each step, it keeps us focused upon the guidance of God while we travel in this journey of life. Think about it for a moment. How many of you have ever, and be honest with yourself, read an entire instruction manual, putting uh, an item together or using an item that you just purchased only to find out that after you've read the manual and you go to the item or whatever it is to use it or to build it or what have you, you realize you missed something. Then you have to go back to find the one step that you missed, which brings everything all together. But if you just followed the instructions step by step by step, you'd never have to go back and read it all over again. You see, the first, person pronounce, the first person pronouns of Psalms 119 and 105 also reveal that this issue of guidance is a personal issue. You see, it's amazing how one Christian, one believer can open the word and find clear guidance while another can read the same passage but see something totally different. And then there are those that can read it and see nothing at all. This is true even though believers read the same Bible and have the same Holy Spirit. He reveals himself to those who seek him with all their hearts. If you don't believe me, Jeremiah 29 and 13, you can check the text. Two Christians can be very different in their sensitivity to the Spirit and his ministry of illuminating his word to their ready hearts. I want to talk to you today a little bit about the blessings of God. You see, Psalm 1, 1 through 3 is a guide for blessing that is both timeless as it is rich. It doesn't contain any tips on how to get ahead in the stock market or how to land your dream job or I'm here to tell you it's not going to give you the lotto numbers. But what it does offer is infinitely better than all of those things put together because what it details is a pattern for spiritual living that pleases God and opens the treasure trove of heaven. Amen. You see, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And I want to talk to you about this verse because I ultimately believe it is the desire of God that all of his children be blessed. And many of us could be enjoying blessings that we are missing out on because of the first thing I told you to write down. And that is application. Amen. So I want to show you today how you can apply the word of God and enjoy all of the abundance. Everything that I've said to you, the amazing uh, thing that the word of God is, if you begin to apply it, you can enjoy everything that it promises you. Amen. Now, it isn't immediately evident in English translations, but blessed in verse 1 is a plural Hebrew word that could be translated, how many are the blessednesses of God? Well, now, that may not be very good or smooth-sounding English, but it's great theology. And when you seek God, you get blessings multiplied and abundance of blessings beyond your imagination. The Hebrew word to be blessed basically means to be happy. Now, we all want to be happy, and God wants us to be happy, contrary to what the devil tells you. And he wants us to be happy, happy in ways that you can't even imagine yet. So, it's just that our concept of happiness does not always align itself with God's concept of our happiness. You see, biblical happiness is neither the carefree sail through life happiness or even the name it and claim it theology that says God's greatest desire for you is that you be healthy, wealthy, and wise. So what then does it mean? What is it to be blessed in the biblical sense? Well, let's take a few moments and discuss this. Let me share with you a simple definition that I read once that I really fell in love with as it's connected to God's blessing. A blessing is the God-given capacity to enjoy and extend the goodness of God in your life. Now, many people will look at this definition and think it misses the mark. They, they believe the blessing is the thing itself that God has given you out of his goodness, not the capacity to enjoy or even extend what God has given you to others. So let me ask you five questions. And you can hang your hat on these five questions and determine for yourself whether you have a healthy view of biblical blessedness. Here's your first question. Do I have peace? According to Proverbs 10 and 22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So if you're getting what you want, or you're working hard to get it, but all you have to show for it are headaches and sleepless nights and a load of grief, then what you have or what you want may not be a blessing from God. You see, how do you know whether you're on the right track? Well, one way to discern this is to compare your pursuit with the weary working man that we meet 
in Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter in the eighth verse. <laughs> this guy doesn't even have dependence to worry about. Yet the Bible says he was working himself to death. There was no end to his labor. His eyes were not satisfied with riches. He was depriving himself of pleasure. And it was all a grievous task. You see, you don't have to shred your soul to enjoy God's blessing. We live in a world that promotes working hard to get the things that you desire. You've heard the phrase, work hard, then play hard. But the caveat is that the other side of the same coin is when you get what you desired, it is never enough. And you always seem to desire something else. So the cycle, wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat, continues without end. Here's another question you can ask yourself. Question number two, am I content? Well, Paul says, if we have food and covering... With these, we shall be content. 1 Timothy 6 and 8. Now, don't misread you know, what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying that we have to live in a monastery and consume only bread and water like we're in prison. He experienced times in his ministry when he could afford a Smith & Walensky's steak dinner. <laughs> Philippians 4, the 11th chapter through the 12th, the 11th, the fourth chapter, the 11th through the 12th verse, is a great example of this. And we're going to get into it here just in a few minutes. But Paul also knew what it is to have nothing. You see, his point is that once we become discontent with what God provides and want to get rich, we're having a problem. We lose focus on what God wants us to have, which is the which is to pursue His righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You see, the Bible is very clear that happiness does not depend on our financial, our emotional, our sexual, our physical circumstances, and yet God's word says He wants every one of His children to be blessed. That's why I like the definition of blessedness as the, you know, the God-given capacity to enjoy and extend that very goodness. You see, this definition provides the common denominator that allows any Christian in any age and in any circumstance to be a full-fledged candidate for God's blessing. You see, Paul addresses this in Philippians 4, 11 through 12. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. You see, Paul's secret to contentment or happiness is his focus on Christ. In any and every circumstance he was in. People of God, our focus has to shift from the things God gives us to God himself as the giver. Question three, whose counsel do I follow? The false views of happiness are typically of the kind of counsel or advice that we would get from the world. 
Psalm 1 and 1 warns us to avoid this type of counsel. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, the wicked are not just terribly evil people, but it is anyone who does not take God and his word into account while making a decision over their life. You see, we are not to walk or conduct our lives according to the perspective of people who have a man-centered idea of life rather than a God-centered worldview. If you want to enjoy God's goodness, that is, don't go to folk who have no regard for God in order to get advice on how you ought to live. You see, a lot of us aren't enjoying and extending the goodness of God because we're receiving counsel from the wrong people. God's blessings are also not found in the way of sinners. When the psalmist talks about standing, he means where, where you hang out and who your friends are. The people you stand with are those you identify with and those who have, uh, uh, in, in some cases, undue influence on you. Now, the Bible says a person who wants God's blessing will not hang out in the company of people who disregard God's law. People who make it a habit of breaking the very law for which you say you believe. Well. You see, there's a third place you want to avoid if you're seeking God's blessing. You know, the enjoying and extending of the goodness of God. You see, the last part of Psalm 1 and 1 says that the blessed person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, a scoffer is someone who makes light of serious things. To scoff is to express contempt or mockery that isn't deserved. The word seat suggests someone who sits in judgment. In the Old Testament days, the elders of the city sat at the city gate to conduct business and also to hear cases and render judgments. Thus, a scoffer sets himself up as a judge and jury in matters he doesn't even understand. Scoffers are people you don't want to be influenced by. Now, if you really paid attention, you should notice the progression that is in verse 1. But just in case you missed it, I'm going to share it with you. The not blessed person, if we can use that term, starts off walking by the wrong crowd and stopping to ask for advice. Then he decides to hang with this crowd and finally he becomes so comfortable with them that he sits down with them. Now, this is a warning for all of us because we are all have had times when we went from feeling uncomfortable in the wrong situation to tolerating that situation and then finally feeling at home in that situation. And if we're not careful, this can become a lifestyle. And when that happens, we forfeit the blessings of God. Amen. Question number four. Am I delighting and meditating on the word of God. Now that we know that the path to blessedness is not found in following the world, we can look at where God's blessing can be found. The psalmist answered this with a really clear declaration that God's blessings are inextricably tied to his word. 
he declares, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now the word delight refers to the enjoyment of or the pleasure in something or someone. So when you delight in someone, you want to be with that someone all of the time. And when you're not together, you can't stop thinking about that someone. And when you delight in a song, you play or you hum that tune over and over and over and over again. Now, the writer of Psalm 1 says that the blessedness or to be blessed or happy, uh, this person delights in God's word and allows it to occupy their mind. Now, I've heard the argument. I've got a family. I've got a job. I got stuff to do. I can't sit around all day reading the Bible. I don't have time to be on my knees in prayer before the, law, the Lord all day long. And this might be true. But this is not what the verse is saying. You see, the key is in the word meditate. For instance, did you know, this may come as a shock to you, that persistent worry is a negative form of meditation? So when you are worried about something, and I want you to think about this. Think about your life. Think about your argument, your excuse. I can't do this with God all day long, yet you find the ability to meditate on negative things that are occurring in your life. And when you are worried about something, you can't get it out of your mind. No matter what you are doing, that thing is in the forefront of your thinking. And people spend a lot of time meditating on their stuff. Many of us even as I'm talking to you, are in the process of meditating on your finances. You're meditating on what you're going to do next. Now, some people meditate on their favorite television program or sports team. You'll find this on days like Super Bowl Sunday. Are we going to get out of church in time to watch the Super Bowl? The pastor's not going to dare call us the fast because we got to eat. It's Super Bowl Sunday. But what we meditate on, what we think about the most and what consumes our affections comes out in what we talk about the most. So let's not use the I don't know how to meditate excuse as a reason for not focusing our minds on God and his word. Because we all meditate. It's simply a matter of what we are meditating on. So we need to think about what our lives would look like if we systematically and seriously applied the scripture that we're dealing with. Now, one way to meditate on the word is to roll it over and over in your mind and ask, God, how does your word affect me? How does it affect what I'm facing, what I'm doing right now? What does your word say about my response to what I'm facing? How can your word change what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling right now if my attitude ain't right? How does your word equip me to deal with the things that I'm facing? You see, meditation connects God's word to life's realities. The difference between hearing God's word and being blessed by it is called meditation. Why does God want us to meditate on his word? Well, there are many reasons, including the need to avoid sin. Psalm 119 and 11. Now, the Bible is the repository of 
uh, our spiritual blessing. Psalm 1 and 3 says of the blessed person, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Now a tree is a great word picture of someone who is enjoying God's goodness and blessings in spite of the circumstances they're facing. And when the Bible uses the word grass, it is illuminating something that is transitory. Look in Isaiah 40, 7 through 8, or Matthew 6 uh, and 30. But a tree illustrates that which is meant to last. Now the psalmist continued to describe this blessed person as a tree uh, firmly planted. And this is a picture of stability being firmly anchored. I can get a tall ladder and lean it against the building and then climb to the top of the ladder and stand there, but there is a fundamental, all-important difference between me on a ladder and me on a tree. Unless Superman is holding the ladder for me, I am not firmly planted. The next puff of wind could blow me over. And when you are firmly planted, the stuff that used to blow you over doesn't knock you down anymore. You may bend in the wind, but your root system will hold you in, in, in place if your roots are planted deeply in the word of God. Amen. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews calls our hope in Christ an anchor for our soul. Now guess where we learn about uh, that hope? I'll give you a second to think about it. Yep, you got it, God's word. Notice also that the leaf is described as connected to the blessed person as never withering. There, this tree is uh, it's an evergreen, in other words. There is a freshness and vibrancy about a person who is being blessed by God. It doesn't mean we never feel sad or uh, we're never burdened with things or experience any anguish. The Bible doesn't say that the leaves won't shake in the wind sometimes. Those are the external circumstances that we can't control. But the leaves of our lives won't die and fall off from the internal lack of water when we are tapped into God and his word. You see, the person who knows and lives in God's word enjoys a continuous source of life. My wife's garden has many plants in it. And she's been nurturing those plants. She showed me that some of the leaves were turning yellow, which was a sign that something's wrong. So she began her investigation. And she earned her nickname, Mom FBI. This name was lovingly given to her by our youngest son who believes that my wife is the greatest investigator that's ever lived. But what she found was there was a deficiency in the soil. You see, the soil was lacking nitrogen so the plants could not feed the nitrogen from the soil they were planted in. So she had to find a way to enhance the nitrogen production so that her plants could thrive. <laughs> when you are planted in the word, you will never face this kind of dilemma. There will never be a moment of deficiency because there is never anything lacking in his word. Let me ask you the fifth question. Am I producing good fruit? Right in the middle of Psalm 1 and 3, it says a blessed person yields or produces fruit. 
Now, this refers to uh, taking the uh, internal nourishment and refreshment and turning it into something that other people around you can enjoy too. One of the things you have to understand, people of God, is that God does not bless you just for you. But God's desire is that the blessings flow through you, that you become a conduit to his goodness so that others too might enjoy. If you're being blessed, but all you are passing on to others is a sour, dried up piece of fruit, your blessing is stopping at the wrong station. You see, fruit always reflects the character of the tree that it comes from. Your capacity to enjoy God uh, should give you something that you ought to share. A tree doesn't yield fruit for uh, its own consumption. I've never, in all my years, watched a tree eat the fruit it bore. But what I have watched is every tree that bore fruit was a blessing to everyone that came by and picked it. Fruit always exists for the benefit of somebody else. Let me say that again for you. Fruit always exists for the benefit of another. So one way you know you're blessed is that you are being a blessing. Now look at the summary statement in this great passage we've been studying. Whatever the blessed person does prospers. God can make such a great promise because the person who is delighting in and meditating on his word will reflect God's mind and God's heart. God's blessing will prosper you in that you will know his pleasure in your life. That's quite a package of blessing. There's no question about God's desire to deliver his blessing. The only question is whether we are putting ourselves in a position to receive and enjoy his goodness and then extend that goodness to others. But too many of us are still bound. We're bound by our human condition. We're bound by our self-centered thinking. But in Christ... The Bible tells us that we are new creations. But let me shock you with something because some people will argue this with me. Even though we are new creations in Christ, we are still sinful. Now, you realize when you try to do the right thing and you wind up doing the wrong thing, that you're still dealing with sin. You see, some people have the idea that once I come to the knowledge of Christ and I've been forgiven of sin, that now I'm delivered in the sense that now I will never sin again. And that's just the wrong thinking. Matter of fact, as the bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. There are often times when I have to say that to myself, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. At least we're in good company. Because in Romans, the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter, the apostle Paul wrestles with the question, if I am a Christian, why am I doing the very things I don't want to do? His answer clarifies that it was the law of sin which is in my members. That's his body, Romans 7 and 23. And if you keep on reading 
Though because Paul isn't making excuses for himself, and it's important we understand that. Or he, he's not giving us an excuse to use. But here is his conclusion to the whole matter. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and of death. Romans 8 and 2. So this is the Christian's emancipation proclamation. But Paul also tells the Galatians it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Amen. Hmm. How can someone who has been set free by Jesus Christ be in danger of becoming a slave to the very thing Jesus set them free? Well, we can rule out the loss of salvation because that can never happen to a true believer. If you don't believe me, John 10 and 28, check the text. You see, salvation is not the issue in Galatians 5. But whether these Christians would allow themselves to be subjugated to the demands of the Mosaic law instead of living by the power of grace. Now, one of the ironies of the Christian life is that the Bible tells us to be who we already are. And God says we need to behave like his children because that's who we are. And we are told to make sure we live in the freedom that Christ purchased for us because we are, in fact, free people. As a matter of fact, you ought to say that loud. Say it proud. I am free. We are abiding in Christ and his word is abiding in us. And when we are enjoying his company through the word, the Bible becomes that precious thing to us. We will begin to experience what Jesus meant when he said, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Indeed means sure enough or certainly. It means this is the real deal. Because the Son has the authority to set us free and keep us free. Amen. I want you to understand that you're a person who is walking in the victory of God. God's word also has an announcement for the devil. In the words of David to Goliath, the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. 1 Samuel 17 and 47. Now, the enemy Goliath, who stood for all that was evil, was a terrifying presence with his huge size, his heavy armor, and his gigantic weapons. But like our enemy Satan, if you look in 1 Peter 5 and 8, Goliath was a toothless lion because David was fighting in the uh, name of the Lord and in the power of God's strength. And in the end, it was no contest. David's little stones and sling, not Goliath's huge spear, were the mighty weapons because this was not really a battle of flesh, but of spirit. The psalmist proclaimed, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Psalm 98 and 1. Now this is the victory that he wanted us Christians. This is what the Apostle John called the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. 1 John 5 and 4. 
Now, if we are talking about achieving victory and the context of that victory is spiritual warfare, then we need the right weapons to fight with. And this is where the Bible comes in for, it not only tells us about the, the weapons that God has given us, but it also is our primary weapon itself for defeating our enemy, the devil, and laying claim to spiritual victory. The reason the Bible is a spirit sword instead of an actual steel blade is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces forces of wickedness in heavenly places Ephesians 6 and 12 now if you're fighting with other people because you think other people are the enemies keeping you from enjoying the victory that God has promised you you're fighting on the wrong battlefield right. Ephesians 6 makes it crystal clear that when it comes to spiritual warfare and the issue of our victory, the matter has already been settled. How do we know? Well, if you read the spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, you will notice that nowhere are we told to attack the enemy and try to overcome him. There's not one iota of instruction given to us in the text that covers how we are to engage battle that tells you to go on the war path. Instead, our job is to stand firm. You see, too many of us talk about fighting an enemy that has already been defeated. We are trying to create our own victory. Now, why should a soldier be told to stand firm instead of to advance or to attack? A soldier is told this because he has already uh, conquered the area or the territory that was intended to be taken. His job is not to take new territory. His job is to hold on to what he has. Jesus Christ defeated the devil. Jesus Christ defeated all of the army of the enemy. He defeated them on the cross. And nothing can cancel out that victory. So the result is that we are not fighting for victory, but from a position of victory. Satan is a defeated foe. Now the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is the only offensive weapon in our Christian armory. You see, it's not like you see in the movies where they run to the trunk of the car, they open up the trunk, and all of a sudden there's like 400 different style guns and bombs and grenades and uh, every knife you can think of to choose from to engage in battle. We have one, the sword of the spirit. And Paul likened it to a particular kind of sword, not just any sword that the Roman soldier carried. One that all his readers in Ephesus would have been very familiar with. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6 and 17. The sword mentioned here is not that long sword we usually see in old movies swung by uh, Mel Gibson. It's not the one that's 
you know, hanging at the soldier's side in a sheath. The word for sword here refers to a much shorter dagger-like weapon that a soldier carried in his belt for quick access in case he got into close combat. You see, a soldier sometimes used both hands to wield his long sword, but his short dagger-like sword could be applied much more directly Amen. and with a deadly result. Now, I'm making this point in some depth because this is the word that Paul chose under the Holy Spirit's inspiration to describe what God's word is designed to do for us in spiritual battle. And it's important to understand that spiritual warfare is not swinging at the enemy from a distance, but up close combat. You see, the devil may be beaten, but he's still alive and well for now anyway, and he loves nothing better than to kick dirt in your eye that's why victory in spiritual warfare requires a weapon that can deliver precise blows another Greek word in Ephesians 6 and 17 is very enlightening as we seek to understand how to win in spiritual warfare Paul called the spirits uh, its dagger the word of God but we need to pause here because this is not the ordinary word for scripture and I want you to catch this. I about fell out my chair and, and, and was in worship to God when I began to understand what he was telling us. Paul did not use the familiar Greek word logos, which looks at the Bible in its entirety as the received body of God's truth. Instead, Paul used the word rhema which means an utterance. And he looks at the Bible not just as a bound volume of 66 books, but also as a weapon ready at hand to be used in a definitive way in a definite time of need. You see, Paul was telling us that if we want to be victorious in spiritual warfare, we must be able to draw on specific truths from the Bible in specific situations to counter specific temptations and attacks from the enemy. Amen. You see, you can have the entire logos of God on your shelf. The very word of God that is complete and true in every syllable and yet not be well armed for spiritual warfare because you don't know how to draw on the rhema of God when you are under attack. And until the logos of God also becomes the rhema in your hand to defeat your enemy, you won't see the Bible's power at work. As long as the Bible is just a bunch of general statements to you, you'll get general results. But someone who is filled, controlled by the Holy Ghost and who knows how to handle the word of the Spirit in specific spiritual encounters can win in every circumstance. Uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Bible becomes, sh becomes sharp and powerful only when we start using it properly. In fact, one of the foundational verses of this entire uh, study that we've been uh, doing is saying exactly the opposite of this. But the word or logos of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4 and 12. Guess what word uh, for sword the writer used here? You got it. The Roman short sword dagger that we've been talking about. 
So here is a text that joins the logos, all of God's word, with his concept of a sharp precision weapon, just as in Ephesians 6 and 17, just as it uses rhema. You see, God's word is sharp regardless of whether we ever discover that reality for ourselves. Now, the reason you want to learn the Bible generally is so you can use it specifically when the need for victory and spiritual warfare arises. I want to be victorious in my Christian life, not just barely hanging on until I die or until Jesus cracks the sky with his angelic reinforcements. The great thing about the rhema of the spirit is that it can keep you out of unnecessary battles as well as give you power to use in aggressive spiritual warfare. How would you like to have Satan leave you alone for a while and have angels minister to you? If this is something that, that interests you, if this is something you think that you'd like to experience, you ought to use God's word to send him packing just like Jesus did in the desert. Satan cannot stand the word of God. Amen. Now, I don't care how big and bad you are, the devil isn't afraid of you or your words, but the sword of the spirit will cut him up so badly he can't take it. Now, you may be wondering what role angels play as regards to your victory. Don't worry. They're out there. They're doing their thing. God has a spiritual support system waiting to go into action that can do powerful things beyond your wildest ability to even begin to conceive. Ephesians 3 and 20 will tell you this. And it sharpens your sword, the rhema, by memorizing it. But if Matthew 4 teaches us anything, it teaches us that God's power is released by our willingness to use his word verbally and defeat the devil in real combat. Amen. You know, they're quick to tell you that it's not the crazy person that talks to themselves, it's the crazy person that answers himself. So you can verbally walk around and engage the enemy with the word of God to cause the enemy to flee from you. Now, I want to tell you something, and I'm going to close with this. And this is as much for the body of Christ as it is for my fellow pastors. The heart of the myriad of problems and issues facing us as a nation, facing our communities and even our local churches fundamentally rests on an absence of three things. I want you to understand this, people of God. God showed this to me. What we're dealing with in America, what we're dealing with in Ohio, what we're dealing with in the city of Columbus rests fundamentally on the absence of three things. And I share this one in hopes that those that are in power who may be listening to me might take this to heart. And I'm going to share these three things with you even as God shared them with me so that we can have a correct understanding of what God intends. 
What is missing is a correct understanding of God. Pastors who accurately administer the Bible and God's law. Now, a somewhat obscure but entirely profound passage in the Word of God is found in 2 Chronicles, the 15th chapter. And it outlines these three missing ingredients. Now, while this passage records specific circumstances uh, thousands of years ago, in many ways it reflects our current situation today. It highlights the lack of proper administration of a kingdom theology as the cause for a societal, familial, and individual breakdown. For many days, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all of the inhabitants of the land. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city for God troubled them with every kind of distress. Now, this is a picture of great spiritual and social chaos, the breakdown of a society. So what was wrong? Three crucial ingredients were missing in the administration of Israel's national life and I believe they are missing today in our nation and even in our churches. If you are a pastor or a church leader and you happen to be listening to me today, you have been positioned to stand in the gap for such a time as this. The first missing ingredient is the true God. Now, the chronicler was not saying that the Israelites had become atheists or no longer believed in God. He wasn't saying that attendance at the temple was down. The sacrificial fires at the temple were still going on. But Israel had lost a correct view of God and the nation was no longer accomplishing his agenda. When I look at America, I find that the foundation of America was built upon God's word. But through time, this nation has lost its focus on the true God, which has caused its policies to shift. You see, the Israelites wanted a convenient God. One that they could control. Essentially, they wanted a kingdom without a king. They wanted a mere figurehead, a puppet with the trappings of kingship only. Yet if you have a God that you can control, then you are God instead of him. Now, the Israelites didn't want the true God interfering with their national life, you know, reminding them that he had an agenda that was greater than their personal interests and desires. Our culture doesn't want a God like that either. Our culture wants to pay homage only, to offer niceties, uh, to, to have a little prayer before a public meeting, to say, hey, we recognize God. But we don't want to hear from the true God. The true God does not adjust to you. You adjust to him. The true God does not adjust his policies because society is now woke and more accepting of inclusivity. I'd rather stay stupid 
and asleep than believe I know better than God what is moral or what is right. Anytime we simply pay homage without submitting our thoughts and our actions under God's revealed word, we are reinforcing our culture's false view of a God as a harmless deity who doesn't have anything significant to say about the educational, scientific, entertainment, civic, political, familial, legal, or racial issues of our day. And in doing this, we leave God the title of king, but in name only. We give his direction and authority over to ourselves. The second ingredient that's missing in Israel and is missing in America was a lack of teaching priests. Today, that can be translated to mean a lack of pastors preaching in biblical exposition. Again, the text doesn't say that there were no priests, but the priests had stopped teaching the word of God. They had traded divine revelation for entertainment or ritualism. Worship had degenerated into a social gathering. The temple no longer served as the epicenter of all life and consciousness of the culture, calling people to take God seriously and reminding them of what his word says. No real discipleship was occurring. You see, Israel was suffering from an absence of spiritual leaders who took seriously the authority of Scripture for all of life. And too often today, pastors preach to please and fear that someone might say, well, I didn't like that sermon, so I'm going to take my membership somewhere else. But if congregants say that when the pastor lovingly and passionately preaches the word of God, then they have given a wrong response. And if a pastor catered to these sort of responses and preach to please, then they are too out of line. The issue is whether the message is true, not whether the message is popular. The issue is whether the message is true, not whether you think it's right or wrong. The issue is, is the message true? Is it founded upon the word of God? I want to please only one person when I preach, and that is God and God alone. You can't please mankind anyway because we are too fickle. I might like you today, but that don't mean tomorrow is looking good for you. So stop trying to please mankind when we preach because that's insanity. This third missing ingredient in Israel was God's law. God's word. There's only one standard of truth. There's only one. There's only one standard of truth. That's the changeless word of the one true God. But once God's law is removed from or marginalized in any culture, then the standard for a society is gone. And God becomes your worst enemy. See, that's what happened in Israel. If you don't believe me, when God's law was missing, 
chaos reigned. You cannot have order and structure in society without God's truth. The issue of truth is all important. The lack of truth leads to a conscienceless society. People become anesthetized in their conscience, losing their sense of right and wrong. And the word of God is not there to convict people of sin. In such a society, every person becomes a law unto himself or herself. So chaos rules and truth loses meaning. The stunning thing about the situation detailed in 2 Chronicles 15 is that God caused Israel's distress. Neither sinners in that culture nor the devil himself caused it. And when God is your problem, then only God is your solution. If God is upset, it doesn't matter whom you elect or what program you initiate. When God leaves a society, hope goes with him and the society deteriorates. But as long as you have God, you always have hope. Now, the net result of these three missing ingredients in our world is that we are seeing the devolution of mankind. The more we marginalize God, the worse things are going to get. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 1 and 18, where he writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Then in verse 19 through 31, Paul traces the downward spiral of a culture that excludes God. And this downward spiral is the passive wrath of God when he gives mankind the independence from him that mankind desires. What we uh, what, what, what must we do to reverse this downward spiral in our own nation, in our own city? It, it's time to return to the one true king. It's time to return to his rule in our life. It is time for his kingdom agenda to precede man's agenda. The visible manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of our life. What he says transcends human politics, secular social movements, and religious tradition until we as pastors and the church leaders teach the scripture from the vantage point of the kingdom thread woven within it. Our congregations will not be equipped to fully submit themselves to the Lord as king. My job as pastor and church leader is to administrate the application of the kingdom worldview through teaching and counseling and preaching from the scripture, utilizing the word to its fullest and emphasizing how the kingdom connects through it, throughout it. It's time to recognize that the kingdom of God is not an ethereal fairy tale located in some faraway land. It is both here and now. The kingdom of God has has come it's not on its way the kingdom is here right now may it be said of us when only our legacy is left 
that we administer the responsibilities given to us as leaders under God to influence and to impact the realms he has given us for good in his kingdom. Scripture has provided us with a clear authority and a comprehensive, dynamic approach to all of life when the word of God is applied and taught so that our lives are lived out in proper relationship to our king, his kingdom, and to each other. God will enable us, our families, our churches, our cities, our state, our nation to thrive according to the riches of his glory. Only when Israel returned to God did the situation in their culture improve. Only when this city returns to God will the situation improve. Second Chronicles 15 and 4 tells us God is waiting on you to return to him through his word and encourage others to do the same so that he can work through his church and influence the culture that we're in. God does want you to be blessed. God wants to heal this nation. But God is not going to bless mess. God is not going to just say that because you said it's okay, that it's okay. People of God, God has blessed many in the body of Christ to hold positions of authority in our culture, in our society. Hear me today when I tell you, God puts you in that position not to go along to get along. God puts you there to influence God in everything that you do. You are the influence of God in the position that he's given you. Yes, you're going to receive some kickback. Yes, you're going to have people that don't like you. But I'm here to tell you, man might tell you they elected you. Man might tell you that they appointed you. But I'm here to tell you, you're there because God put you there. And God did not put you there to be a puppet. God put you there to declare the word of the one true living God. So this nation, this state, this city can get back to a place of prosperity. It's time to stop pandering to evil. It's time to stop calling what is wrong right I know the world is headed that way where they're going to call what's wrong right where child is going to be against parent and parent is going to be against child but as long as the church is still here God is still here and as long as God is still here hope is still here 
And I hope that the God in you will begin to operate and apply God's word to your position. You may not like what I said to you today. But this is what God charged me to say. And when I stand before God, I've already made enough mistakes on my own. I don't need to add to it that I chose to preach to the itching ears of people to please them and to soothe them in their sinfulness. But I chose to declare what is right and true according to God's holy word. I'm calling accountability back to this city. May this city be broken if it, that's what it takes for the people in position to function as God intends. So this city can enjoy true revival. Not this nonsense that we're seeing in all the celebrations and festivals in this city. But that this city, this state, this nation can get back to the foundation of its creation which was founded upon God's word. Amen. God bless you. May the Lord keep you. May his face shine upon you and grant to you great peace. Yes, Lord. Everywhere you are, may he be. Every need you have, may he fill. Coming a day when Jesus returns and the trump of God sounds and the church is ushered to meet him in the air, in that moment, don't be the one standing here gazing, thinking UFOs have taken away humanity. For there are some of you who have even heard this sermon today that in that day you will know I should have listened. For great is the wrath of God that comes against this world. People of God, now is your opportunity. Now is your chance. Don't let it go by the wayside. I am praying that the Lord convict your heart and drive you to him. And I say this to both non-believer and believer alike because I know a lot of believers who need a re-meet with Jesus because they only have head knowledge of him. They don't have heart knowledge. They're not in relationship with him. 
And how do I know that there are people like this? Because God himself declared in his word, in that day when you stand before him and proclaim you did this, that, these, and those in his name, his response to you will be, depart from me, you who work iniquity, for I never knew you. Do not be this man or this woman. Be the one where you hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Well done. God bless you.